Hello, and welcome to Carefully Taught, teaching musical theater with Maddie and Kikau. A podcast to discuss musical theater pedagogy and to create a community of sharing amongst musical theater educators. Feel free to email us at carefullytaughtpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at carefullytaughtpodcast. Today's guest is Chris Peterson, who is the founder of Onstage Blog, one of the top theater uh, websites in the country, uh, and uh, which has been live since 2014. Chris, welcome to Carefully Taught, teaching musical theater with Maddie and Kikau. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. This is a real pleasure. I don't, I don't get to be a guest often on podcasts, so uh, I always relish the opportunity when it's presented. So this is fantastic. I'm really happy here. Chris, tell me a little bit about Onstage Blog and how it came to be, because I, I got to tell you, when theater people send me articles like links or they post things on their social media i don't do facebook anymore but like instagram or whatever nine times out of ten it's it's not playbill it's not broadway.com it's on stage blog like it seems to me that it's the theater website that theater people use and and go to and and share news from so how did that all come to be you know, it's a, it's a pretty silly story. Um, I, I started a blog, because uh, I had done a couple other blogs in my previous life. I did something on travel, I did something on politics, I did something on cooking, and I just, it was always a kind of a medium that I was comfortable with. And about seven, eight years ago, I started um, a blog strictly to talk about theater that was happening in Westchester County of, uh, in Fairfield County of Connecticut in New York. Like literally, that's all I was gonna talk about. And within a month of me starting that, I wrote a couple kind of generic observations about theater as a whole, whether we're talking about the audition process or, hey, why is there so much whitewashing happening in certain areas of theater? And those pieces really kind of exploded and took off. And what I started to realize was there really wasn't a site that was dedicated to talking about different issues other than promoting and uh, um, you know publicizing theater that other sites do that other sites pretty much have to do because that's what they were set up to do so um from that it just kind of grew and grew and grew and then really i would say you know in that next year or so it really became this this thing that what was going to start as a hobby then be has now be then became a part-time job and now is a co-full-time job um on that end but it's been really amazing to see the growth of onstage blog and, and to see um, the impact that it's had and, and really the the results and that of conversations that have happened because of content that's been posted there. So that's really what I'm most proud about is is the conversations and the change that we've seen um, and and hopefully what we've you know contributed to. And so on that, you you know you me- you mentioned not steering away from controversial topics um, and really starting the conversation or even continuing the conversation. Um, what have you found in in terms of recent conversations that have maybe sparked conversation and and would be interesting to to discuss here? You know, it's a great question. I mean, it, it really. For the for the for, uh, most part, what I try to start out with is is looking at what's not being talked about at all. What is the taboo subject that sites aren't really supposed to be talking about? Is it pay inequality? Is it 
um, casting representation? Is it issues of abuse and, and certain other types of allegations that are happening behind the scenes? And let's start there because where, wherever the conversation is not happening, let's see if we can, if we can begin it. And um, what my process is, and I try to reach out to as many resources as I can, talk to as many people as I can, um, really kind of gain as much perspective as possible. But those really were the, the kind of, I guess you could say the big three, so to speak, that we try to focus in on. And then what's interesting um, and sometimes unfortunate is uh, that is like the beginning of a tree where we start to see, okay, it starts with allegations of abuse, but then it branches off to this power player or this sector or this part of the industry. And so uh, it's, it's really interesting to see how that road weaves uh, when we start there. But um, thankfully, you know, by beginning those conversations, um, I'm always interested and curious to see where it ends up. So uh, it's, it's been really interesting so far. I'm really curious, you know, I mean, when I think of on stage, there's so many articles uh, that I think of. But, you know, I think of like the Ben Vereen uh, stuff that you 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 got into and the Alice Ripley stuff and 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 um, even the, the the topics that you just listed, pay inequality and and um, and whatnot. I, I mean, these are controversial, emotionally charged stories that you're telling uh, topics that you're dealing with. I can't imagine that the first of all, I can't imagine that's a super comfortable world to live in and write about all the time. But I also I'm curious to hear from you about uh, the response that you get, because I imagine you get cheerleading. I mean, I know you get them from me from time to time, like, hey, this was great. Thank you for this article. But then I can also imagine that you're getting the opposite. And I'm curious what that's like. Yeah, it's it's passionate on both sides. I'll I'll put it that way. That's the polite way to put it. But no, in in all honesty, I mean, you know, it, you know, a lot of people think that the theater industry is this gigantic, huge industry, and and you know, um, I'm just a small piece of this, and, and there's no way that I, my voice can be heard, and blah blah blah. But in reality, it's it's the smallest community that's out there, and the the community is built on relationships. They're built on longstanding relationships that people have with one another. So when someone perceives one member of the community being attacked for some reason or another, that's going to elicit a, a, a ton of different responses. And, you know, the Ben Vereen piece is a good example of that. I mean, nobody was going to talk about that. That that came to me early on. And um, I, you know, this was like, oh my gosh, this is way too big for me. So, you know, working with other news outlets and things like that. But when that came out, um, it was really interesting to see how, you know, many people within the industry that, that knew Ben for decades, um, would just kind of blindly attack and discredit not only me, but you know the, the victims that brought their stories forward, just simply based on the relationships with Ben. Yeah. Um, and we sat with a number of people that that have been kind of um, under fire for certain things. Is that you know their allies, their friends will defend them. Now, don't get me wrong, that's a I, I think friendship and and partnership is a great thing. You know, you want to have people, your friends that de defend you and things like that. But at the same time, if I'm someone who's been accused of doing something terrible. Um, I want those same friends to do a serious evaluation of their of their relationships with me. And so there have been a lot of times where I've sometimes responded to those facts, uh, to those people and saying, these are the facts. These are, this is what happened. Um, I understand that you're, you know, you're passionate and you, you're a supportive person of, of this particular individual, but please look at the whole picture. And on the flip side, there's also people that irrationally support um, certain things based on a rumor or speculation and I'm, and sometimes you have to kind of pull the reins back and say whoa whoa collect more information before you start saying certain types of indicative things on on social media so it's really interesting anytime we put out a piece there i know i mean 
a lot of people think, Chris, did you know that this was going to get, you know, the, the heat or the intention that it did? Of course I do. I hundred percent of the time. I always know how much it's going to get. So I prepare myself for that, but it's just, it's always interesting to see um, who specifically reacts to these pieces. There's also a, um, what I love about it is uh, what, what I feel this generation needs in terms of education is like transparency, right? I love that you're saying, here is the information that I know, here here are these resources. I think that's so right. Um, and this, um, as you're saying, sort of opens up um, our community, our the theatrical community, our um, musical theater education community in a way um, that, that brings light to those dark spaces. So I just, I wanna commend you on on being um, that voice and being sometimes that person that's going in the, the opposite direction that you would expect, um, which is really great. Um, connecting this to education, um, you know, uh, what do you see um, as uh, the, the needs of a young person interested in trying to be a part of this uh, industry, um, you know, we're teaching them, we want them to go into this space that does have these dark spaces. What, what are, what is your message to them? What is your connection, if at all, to, to education specifically? Oh my gosh, that's, that's a great question, Kiko. I mean, you know, I, I think for any student that's, you know, either at a, you know, middle school level thinking about doing this in high school or a high school thinking about going to this in college or a college student thinking about getting into the industry afterwards, um, my first message is there's never been a better time in the history of this world to, to get into this field than right now, period. Um, there's never been a better time. And the reason I say that is um, the industry is more aware of itself than ever before. I feel that even though we see, you know, bits and pieces that aren't as evolved or as open as they were, the doors is wider than it's ever has been for, for different people, whether it is uh, from a racial standpoint, from a gender standpoint, from a size standpoint, the, the audition rooms, the, the job opportunities are more um, interested in you as an individual than there has ever been a better time. Um, the other thing, too, is in terms of job opportunities, you know, um, you know, coming from a college admissions background like myself, I, I talk to the industry constantly. Um, and, you know, with the emergence of things like streaming networks, um, small short form videos on YouTube, TikTok, things like that, there's more opportunities than ever before to quote unquote, get gigs or make it or things like that um, on, on, on that line. Um, and we're, you know, I'm based here in Georgia. We're seeing a ton of students that are flocking down here to the Atlanta area, to Georgia, because that's where the jobs are. And so um, I tell everybody, you know, there's that stigma out there that there's no money in, in performing arts. There's, there's no career there, things like that. There absolutely is, whether you're working directly in it or you're taking the skill sets that you learn from these classrooms um, that you could apply to anywhere. I mean, I was a theater major myself. Um, I, I tried my hand at acting. I, I did the whole auditioning thing and said, okay, I, I need a constant paycheck. That's, that's really the most important thing. But everything I've done since, I've utilized training and skill sets that I've learned in, in, in the classroom, on the stage um, and things like that. So I'm telling everybody like, you know, that yes, there's that stigma out there, but please, 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 the reality is there's never been a better time to get into this field than right now. And also too, um, I, I think from, a, from an educator standpoint, um, especially at a college level, there's never been a better time either where you've got 
programs that are now really listening to their students. And uh, both of you represent amazing institutions that have tremendous reputations um, in, in the field, not only because of the quality of the programs that you offer, but the fact that you're listening to your students. I mean, UArts, Chico, I mean, these are, these are institutions that um, I always hear amazing things about that are always when we do our college ranking systems that are, they score very, very highly on that. And, and the categories that we look for in our college rankings go beyond things like scholarships or facilities or you know tenure of faculty they look at the actual programs themselves and and asking the questions are all these programs truly preparing students for the realities of the industries and and these your institutions and other institutions are doing it better than they ever have before um i want to ask you about college the, the ranking system and that process and uh, but before i jump into that i because we're talking about this moment and the extraordinary uh, progress that we are seeing and, 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 and living in and experiencing and celebrating. I want to know from you, from your perspective, what do you think musical theater training programs in particular uh, are, what are we missing right now? What are you seeing uh, from your vantage point that we could be doing better, uh, that we could uh, shift focus to, to, to give more space to? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's it's the first thing is um, financial independence from their, their institutions. Um, that is the biggest thing because the problem that we're seeing that that I feel is that a lot of musical theater programs are kind of pigeonholed to the budgets of their schools where they have to deliver on ticket sales and things like that to make their programs it profitable in a nonprofit um, environment, which is weird to say, but um, and so the problem when you have that is that when you've got that monetary requirement hanging over a program's head, a lot of the decision making underneath is is based surely on that from show selection to the type of students, the amount of scholarships that are given. It is it is a it's a terrible um, ripple effect that that really impacts schools. So I, I would love for an institution and 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 please correct me if if Chico or UArts are, are doing this right now because it'd be great if they are of of really just giving their their departments financial independence saying hey, this is your budget whether you use it whether you don't whether you whether you make it back up through ticket sales we don't care do what you need to do to make sure that your program is successful um and and graduating students on time making sure they're getting worthwhile education and preparing them for the future and i think that's really the most important thing um because you know i, I talked to a professor actually the other day at a, an institution who told me chris i would love to do smaller um more obscure shows done by uh bipoc playwrights but the problem is i got to sell seats and the tickets at my for students at my school are free so 80 percent of my audience is coming in complimentary so i have to appeal to the, the the larger community and the larger community wants chestnuts they want the um you can't take it with you they want the oklahomas they can't you know if i said to them hey we're going to do ain't misbehaving uh, this term, they're gonna be like, what? Like, wh but what about what about Cinderella and all these other things? So he, it's a struggle, and um, you know, you ask, you know, these professors and these educators and administrators, how do you how do you evolve a program when you have to do the same types of material every single year just to sell tickets up and things like that? So that that would probably be the one thing that that my big answer of of like this is what needs to change. So um, let's talk the ranking. Let's talk about that, because uh, you know you you uh, what I, one of the things I love about onstage blog is what we were just talking about. You push the envelope. You um, you aren't afraid to ruffle feathers, and um, one of the areas that I see feathers get ruffled 
um, are this your your ranking system. And I and I looked and Chris, please correct me if I'm wrong. You haven't done it for a couple of years. Correct. Correct. Oh, yeah. So, I, go ahead. So I don't know if that was COVID related or or what, but would you talk about the state of the college ranking system for musical theater in particular, since that's our focus? Yeah. Well, you know, I started it. I started doing rankings, you know, uh, about five six years ago because I saw the ranking system is broken. Um, and having worked in college education and, and working in kind of a publicity admissions background, I could see the reality of how these schools get ranked the certain ways that they do. And the problem that I saw is there was really very little research being done um, by these publications that, you know, would would rank certain schools number one, two, three, four, and five. Um, a lot of times there were certain, you know, I don't want to name the publications necessarily here, but there's a publication out there that uh, if you pay them a certain amount of money, you will get ranked a certain level. I mean, that's just, that's the reality. And schools with big budgets uh, can do that. And that's why you typically see in that publication's ranking system, the top five schools are the ones with the largest endowments because they can afford to pay these publications. The other problem too, is a lot of these other uh, websites out there um, kind of just rely on their previous year's lists and say, look who we ranked last year. Have they changed? I don't know, but you know, it's, it's, it's Juilliard. They're of course, number one. So let's just put number one again, things like that. So it, it was a broken system. And so I said, let's, let's break it down and say, who really reads these rankings? Is it the students? Is it educators? Is it parents? And, and let's answer their direct needs. And let's talk about what the questions that they ask in the college admissions process and, and the search process and things like that. So I basically said, look, we're going to mystery shop every single college we possibly can. And I would basically ask for volunteers um, and they would basically call or sometimes visit in person these colleges. And we would have about eight to 12 different categories that these people would rank um, basically one through five and everything from quality of facilities to uh, diversity of faculty to um, resources to how many performing opportunities do you have per year, um, looking at the scholarship opportunities that you have, um, and then basically doing our rankings and, and whoever had the highest scores after that matrix that we would basically upload into a database, that's how we, how we did our rankings. And that, to, to your point, Matt, about um, ruffling feathers, you know, these, when these um, esteemed, um, you know, tenured faculty would see uh, an, an obscure show from the Midwest, like intrude upon the Northeast Kingdom of performing arts, uh, it was like, how in the world did this happen and things like that. And so, but again, that's, that's, you know, because these publications aren't looking at reality. And so that was really the reason why we did it. And to my, to my, um, you know, what really made me happy was that I started seeing schools that I knew were always fantastic, but not a lot of other people did. And, you know, I'll just pick one off randomly, Nebraska Wesleyan in Lincoln, which um, has a tremendous theater program that had been ignored for years. Um, they, I mean, I, I had a feeling they were gonna score very high once people actually started looking into that school. And sure enough, that that's exactly what happened. And, and I've heard back from a couple of their faculty saying that their program has, has uh, really increased in size because of that, because it's finally getting the promotion that it deserves. Um, and, uh, you know, why did we stop it? So I, here's the, this, I took a break because, and this is, I'll be completely honest with you. It's, uh, as opposed to, I've, I've been lying this entire time, but <laughs> um, no, it really started with, you know, a couple of years ago when we started seeing the demands of students for, um, 
kind of a, a greater response to racial inequities that we're seeing and other representation issues on the campus. And I realized that we were ranking schools without asking certain questions that should have been asked. And um, I looked at other ranking lists and I said, we're, we're failing BIPOC students. We're failing students with certain disabilities. We're failing students uh, with that are, you know, different genders and sizes and, and things like that by not asking about inclusion. We're not asking about value. And we're just saying, go to, go to these schools because they, they have the best facilities, they have the best faculty. Um, and so I wanted to take some time to really evaluate how we're evaluating, to ask what questions we're asking, what we're looking for in schools, and making sure that the schools that we're, we're recommending are safe for everybody, um, that, that don't have this glaring uh, problem. Because, you know, and, and this is not to shame them in any way, shape, or form, because to my knowledge, they've corrected it, but, you know, we, we put Ithaca College constantly in the top 10, best, one of the best acting schools, best, you know, musical theater schools in the country. And yet they had a massive issue when it came to um, valuing their BIPOC students. And so that was a huge like wake up call for us. Pace University was another one that had to go through this, this process of really taking a look in the mirror. And some schools have succeeded in that, other schools have failed. And going forward, the schools that have failed to do that will not be mentioned on our list. I don't care if they are widely considered by every publication to be in the top five, if they're not making their school safe for everybody who attends, they're not gonna be on my lists. How do you intend to evaluate that? You know, it, it comes with conversations with the faculty. It also comes with conversations with both current students and alumni. And um, when I started, probably it was like last July or August, uh, we started having those conversations. Uh, LinkedIn and Instagram and Twitter are phenomenal tools to, to reach out to people. And, you know, simply it was just me asking the question, can you tell me about your experience at your school? Um, and I was looking for, for alumni that had both graduated recently, also some of them who had graduated maybe a decade or more, just to see kind of how, how things have changed and things like that. So since July, we've collected probably, you know, a, a ton of data and a ton of responses. We've had a lot of interviews with a lot of schools. Um, and so I would imagine that, you know, probably come May, uh, we'll probably start releasing our early, our lists again um, on that way. But again, I didn't want to rush it. I wanted to take, you know, at least a year to, to really kind of dig into this. So, yeah. That's amazing. And that alumni voice, as you're saying, is so important, right? I mean, that is the best way to to know if, if it is a school that you're interested in going to by talking to people who have gone through it. I mean, at least especially in the most recent time. So I love that you're you're doing that kind of outreach. Um, I'm wondering what, like, that is happening right now um, that is on your radar, right? Like, um, uh, I'm, I'm curious to know what, what movie musicals you are interested in, what, what television shows, Netflix, or, or even what Broadway shows might be on your radar. I'll tell you, the biggest thought on my mind, the, the, the thought that keeps me up at night, literally, like I... I literally sit here and think at a blank screen, how do I write this, is what is the future of professional theater in, in a post-COVID situation? And I shouldn't say post, we're during it. Um, how are we doing this? It feels like in broad, especially in the Broadway community, we're just, we're just throwing stuff against the wall and hoping that it sticks. And we're just gonna open as many shows as we can. Who knows if we're gonna have, you know, majority of canceled performances this week, but we're just gonna try to get through it. It's not a way to sustain business. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's not sustainable. It doesn't help the generations that are coming out of colleges like yours uh, that want to get into this industry. So what's the future? Um, and I truly, truly feel that the future is a streaming option. And as someone who is an, a huge advocate for that live audience feeling that you get being in a, in a crowded theater, watching a play or a musical, um, that's the best feeling in the world. But if that's just not possible anymore, um, we need to figure out what else can we do. And so I'm, I'm looking at streaming options. I'm looking at how can we film and capture live theater in certain ways that makes sense and also is profitable enough to sustain itself. So that's really the first thing that's um, I'm thinking about. And I'm also thinking about, you know, if we are gonna sustain business, if we are gonna try to make Broadway and, and other professional theaters successful, um, what types of material are we gonna be doing in the next couple of years? Are we gonna be reverting back to a, jukebox, um, you know, everything's based on a movie, everything's based on a TV show type of thing, um, or are we really going to try to use this moment as an exploratory phase and, and promoting new works from new voices? I love that A Strange Loop is going to be opening on Broadway, fingers crossed, knock on wood this spring. Um, <laughs> and that's a shining example of taking this moment and saying, let's see what we can do with this. Let's roll the dice a little bit. Let's gamble and, and let's you know, break the mold of what traditional Broadway business is all about. So those are the, the two big things that definitely have been on my mind. Um, and then finally is, is you know, the whole conversation about surrounding non-binary performers with non-binary roles. And how do we recognize that? Um, you're seeing, especially in the NCAA of athletics, this huge conversation about trans athletes and how they're able to be categorized to compete in certain things. We have to do the same uh, with how we recognize um, these folks in these communities and the Tony Awards, the Drama Desk Awards, the, you know, every award uh, possible has to figure this out. And they have to figure out now uh, because these stories are coming, these folks are coming um, and and they have to be recognized just as anybody else, uh, you know, that deserving of these awards. So those things that are constantly been on my mind uh, throughout the, you know this entire season. You're so right in terms of Oh, gosh, just in response to all of the things that have happened, it feels like this is the time. It feels like this is the opportunity. Um, uh, I'm not even going to say the word post-pandemic. During this pandemic, right, there's just, this was the chance. This is the chance to think things through, to start afresh. Um, but I think also what comes with that is this this interesting, like, leniency. Like, well, you know, I, I guess we'll just keep doing what we've been doing um, without really questioning what we've been doing. So I, I appreciate To your that. point, I mean, I think people need to understand and producers and, and theater owners and, and the, the power players, no one's going to make money right now. Like no, there's no, you know, no one is going to make money in professional theater. So if you're an investor thinking that you're going to make millions off of this new production, it's not going to happen. So go in knowing that you're going to lose money, go in knowing <laughs> that there's going to be a financial risk and therefore be open to taking those chances because it take that 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 money making equation out of your head and it could lead to some amazing developments and projects who knows i mean um and again that's why i think strange loop is such a shining example of this because you know is that show going to be profitable who knows maybe not with the current environment of of covid related issues that we're having but we're trying anyway so like that's why i'm like just go for it do it Chris, I'd like to ask you, you know, we uh, I'm sort of circling back to something earlier in the conversation, or at least the spirit of uh, something we were talking about earlier in the conversation, and that being um, 
you know, you, you take risks in your publishing the lists. You take risks in the themes and, and the subjects that you dive into with uh, your investigative uh, articles and whatnot. And one of the things I struggle with as a, as a musical theater educator, um, you know, I obviously come from a very specific privilege uh, because of my, my personal identity. And it's hard enough for me in my, in my position and in my privilege to like fight the system and like take a risk by, by calling people in and, and speaking up when I feel like harm is doing. For me, a tenured cis white male professor, all of those, you know, all of that privilege that I have, trying to teach my students or empower my students to speak up um, I'm wondering if you have any advice for that, because you seem unafraid. You seem unafraid to walk through fire to do what you think is right. Um, and and I, that's a hard thing for me to teach. That's a hard thing for all of us to teach. I'm wondering if you could, you know, give advice or, or talk to that experience. Well, I might seem that way, but you should, I should set up a camera in my office while I'm typing these things, because it's usually, it's like I type a sentence and I go for a walk around the block and I'm, or I'm crying in a fetal position thinking like, did I do the a right thing here? single speed, uh, <laughs> sweat dripping down as he's typing ferocious. I mean, the panic, I, I mean, all of that, but yes, you're, you know, it's, it's one of those things, but you know, at the end of the day, I say, this has to be talked about, it, you know, even though it's coming from me, even though it's, it's a heck of a gamble, um, it, it, these topics need to be talked about. And if I can just catalyst that conversation, then the conversation can continue and I can back out and then do other things. So I think, you know, and, and Matt, to your point, I mean, that is a, a question that every college educator seems to be asking right now, especially ones that, like you said, are cis white males or females or, or that, that really are, like, you know, how do I educate my students without sounding like I'm coming from, you know, on high and, and, and things like that. So I think it comes down to a getting down on their level, both literally and physically uh, and metaphorically, like literally sitting on the floor with your students and talking and having an open, honest conversation and saying, and, and what you just basically said should be said to every single student in your first class and saying, this is who I am. I'm telling you exactly who I am, telling you exactly who my experience is, my background, my privilege, everything. How I, at the same time, I'm here to be an advocate for you. I'm here to be your educator. I'm not, you know, I, I always like those educators that say, I'm not, I'm not your friend. I'm not trying to be your friend here, but I definitely want to be an advocate for you. I want to be someone who can be a resource for you. So I want you to tell me what would make you most comfortable, what would make you more safe, what would make you feel you're getting the most out of this educational experience. And I'm going to try my darndest to make sure that it happens for you. And if it's not happening, let's have an, a, a dialogue here. And I think the more that you show yourself open to a dialogue, um, the better it's going to be, the more positive feedback that you're going to get from your students. And that's the, the, the feedback that I've been hearing from alumni and current students that are going through this is they're the ones that are saying when the administration, when the faculty really listens to us and and has these dialogues not these you know once a semester town halls where you know it's organized you know in, in in terrible fashions and things like that where it's happening almost every single day in the classroom that's that's you know really worthwhile and i i talked with one one educator from a school who literally said okay our class period is two and a half hours long we usually have about a 10 minute break in between each hour but for the first half an hour of the class we just have an open discussion about what's going on in your life that's it. So how is, how is your week going? What did you eat for dinner last night? 
Uh, what are you guys watching on TV right now? Oh, you're watching that? Why do you like that so much? They're just having a dialogue about everything else under the sun or whatever's on the students' minds to then open them up to whatever education uh, process is going to happen in the rest of the class. So I think dialogue is just the most important thing. And the problem that you have with so many other institutions that have, and I don't want to slam tenure as being a problematic, you know, uh, thing that's led to more trouble than good. I mean, I think it's great for, for many professional reasons, but I also at the same time, when you have certain tenured faculty that are protected, uh, that you know can't be fired for saying certain things, or if they did say something really, really problematic, it's a long process to get them out of the classroom. Um, so that's what we've seen with some of these other institutions. Like, you know, it happened in North Carolina, it happened in all these other schools where you're having these, these faculty that know they're protected, know that they don't have to, you know, they're not going to face real punishment. So they're just not going to listen and they're not going to do what they need to do to make the classroom a better space. So like I said, communication, openness, having that dialogue, I think is, is the, the best first step possible. So with, uh, you know, Maddie and I always had this conversation about how as directors, as educators, I find it difficult to to watch anything, whether it's on Broadway or uh, the local, you know, regional productions coming through. Um, I'm curious to know when you are watching something or you are experiencing something as an audience member, um, are you able to sort of actually be entertained? Are you able to like separate or, or are you thinking, oh, look at this casting and, and what is the next article or, you know, I, I'm curious to know what your experience is in that. In that. That's, that's a phenomenal question. And I, I relate to that on every single watching of any type of media possible like any casting notice that comes out i'm looking at who the cast is and saying okay you probably could have been a lot more diverse than this but you know at the same time i i try to i anytime i see anything i always give it a moment i give it a moment and i try not to react in that mm -hmm. moment where mm -hmm. I, you know if i'm watching a show on tv or if i'm watching a live action play and there's a, a line of dialogue that i'm like ooh, okay that, that might not be um really great to be saying in 2022 and things like that. But at the same time, I say, is the fact that I'm feeling that way, the goal of what was presented to me. And so I stop, I stop when I start thinking, okay, what was the reasoning behind this? What was, what am I really angry about? What am I really uncomfortable about? What am I feeling awkward about and things like that? And then, you know, if it, if it, you know, if I need to react in a certain way, whether it's on social media or in a blog post or something like that, then I'll go for it after that. But it, taking the time to stop, think about why you're feeling that way, thinking about the intention behind it, because we both all know that, you know, there is material out there that is has been presented in a way to to elicit feelings, to elicit responses. And I feel like, you know, a lot of times in, in the entertainment sector today, these creators are starting to get away from that because they want to play it safe and just go for simply fan satisfaction and things like that without really saying I want to offend my audience. I want to get my audience angry because then it raises attention to this, this, and this, and things like that. So I always tell people, like, especially when they, you know, like when they, when a new movie comes out on um, Netflix or something like that, and then I'll get like, you know, mentioned on Twitter, like, oh, on stage blog, did you see this about this line and this casting? I'm like, okay, I did, but I'm not angry about it because here's why. And here's, you know, we need to stop and think. And the Michael Jackson musical is a great example of this on, on Broadway, where its mere presence is become one of the more polarizing um, discussions on Broadway that I've ever seen uh, in the past 10 years, because you have passion 
on both sides. You've got passionate fans that want to defend his legacy, and you've got passionate people that are supporters of, of sexual uh, abuse victims and survivors. So they're clashing in a way that on Twitter and other social media apps that we've never seen before. But the problem is they're refusing to listen to each other. They're, mm -hmm. they're refusing to listen to any sort of discussion whatsoever. And um, I'm trying to get people to say, look, I don't, I don't support necessarily musical, but I'm willing to talk to someone about it. And I'm willing to have an engagement uh, as long as they are. And so, so again, to anybody who's out there who's watching a TV show, watching a play, watching a musical, that sees a casting listing or um, things, anything of that sort that you that would normally elicit a certain type of response negatively from you, stop and think why. Stop and think about why this is you're having and vocalize that and, and make it longer than this really passive aggressive one sentence thing that you put on social media. Talk about it. And I think that would that would raise the elevate the conversation. And on that, you you often have um, guest writers and sort of uh, solicit sort of new voices to your space. Is that still true? And is that something that that if someone is passionate, they should reach out to you and, and say, hey, I'd love to write this dot, dot, dot. Absolutely. Yes. No, that's something that's always been, you know, really kind of the forefront of my philosophy about the blog is that even though I'm the founder, quote unquote founder, I try not to call, ever call myself an editor in chief because mm. I don't want to insult editors in chief by calling myself one. Um, and um, so I basically say, look, I mean, if uh, this is this is my blog, but it's a it's a stage, it's a platform, it's a microphone. Um, mm -hmm. Anybody wants to step up and, and write something, um, whether it's something that just that they're feeling that's, you know, uh, more academic. Matthew, you've written some phenomenal pieces in the past um, as well. So it, it's just it's just a platform. And I would love to have you know, we've had a diverse space in the past and the present, but I want it to be even more diverse. I would love students from different age groups and different backgrounds and different countries to come and, and write on, on the blog. And now that, you know, we have, you know, advertising and actually, you know, getting revenue from the site, which is like, oh my God, we're actually making money. Um, I can pay those people the, mm. the appropriate amount for their work. You know, like when I first started, I'd say, you know, how's, how's $5 sound? Um, we're just a blog. And, and that was insulting to people, but now we're actually able to pay legitimate, you know, freelance fees and things like that. So I tell people all the time, please come write. And, I, you know, um, you know, I'll give you this platform. I mean, this, the blog itself um, on, a, on a daily basis is getting read at least 60, 70,000 times a day. Um, you know, our Facebook following has a newsfeed reach right now of just over 3 million, which means about 3 million people are seeing our stuff in their news feeds. Um, our Twitter and Instagram um, presences are building as well. So now is the, the best time to, to get out there. Um, and the last thing I want to say is that, you know, a lot of times, you know, when we write certain things, the response is, who is this person think they are? Who does this person think they are writing and commenting about Broadway when they're not someone who works on Broadway and things like that? And to my message is that the people that write on my site, nine times out of 10 are people that love theater, that are doing theater, that are observing theater. And their opinions and, and thoughts and perspectives are just as valuable as those who are working in the industry as well. So what they're observing on stage in their performance matters just as much as what's happening behind the scenes. So their voices are just as valuable as ever. So even if a, if I get a student or uh, a young person that writes an article saying like top 10 Sondheim songs that make me happy, that's an incredible article to write. And that's going to help a dozens upon hundreds of people um, on that end. So like I said, anything is on the table. Um, any voices on the table. Come, 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 please. Um, Chris, thank you for all of that. That's awesome. And I love the analogy of your blog literally being a stage for others to perform on. I mean, that's that makes total sense to me. 
And I may have written a couple of good ones. I wrote a couple of doozies too, but that's that's a beyond um, the uh, so we you know we're at the point now in 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 our conversation where we ask our guests for recommended a recommended resource for our I mean obviously onstage blog is a resource, but beyond that. Um, a book, a podcast, a, uh, you know, whatever, a movie, a documentary, whatever. Or do you have a, a recommended resource that our, our listeners could potentially apply in their classrooms that would be, that would enhance their musical theater uh, education that they're providing their students? Oh my gosh. That's, that's, that's a really, really great question. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to give you what I do. This is my practice for, for what I need to get exploratory when I need to start thinking about certain things. I go back and I listen, watch, read anything from literally decades upon decades ago. And I'm talking past the seventies, past the sixties, get into the 1930s, forties and fifties of entertainment, because it'll show you a lot of different things. Number one, it'll show you how far we've come in some ways or another, how we've evolved, but also show you how, how, things have not evolved and how storytelling, character development, creation of music, um, creation of entertainment. What is entertaining to you? What When you watch a dance sequence, what makes it exciting for you? And things like that. Go back and watch the Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. Go back and watch the Gene Kellys because you'll find out so much about what's happening today from that, um, on that end. So I, I encourage, do like, just go back into the libraries and, and, and do that. Um, because again, you'll just gain so much knowledge and it, it'll just amaze you to see what what folks were doing back then, the brave, even the courage that we were seeing back then. Um, one of my favorite, you know, anytime I need to feel like, and, and, and really to be like, okay, I need to get amped. I need to, to watch this. I need to do something. Um, I go back and watch films like Gone with the Wind because it's, Gone with the Wind is, is a, you know, polarizing film for, for many different reasons. And it's a good resource to watch because again, it's going to make you feel a lot of things. It's going to, it's going to start, you know, triggering those electrodes in your brain to start thinking about different things. So, uh, to my pe- to my folks out there that are wondering, okay, what should I do? Anything that makes you think, anything that engages you, anything that attains you, but literally make it like when cultural differences were huge. You know, nothing against the two thousand and threes and you know nineteen nineties, but you know, while things, a lot of things have changed, not a lot has really changed mm. in terms of society go way back, go way back, because I think that'll be a huge resource for you as well. Um, and also finally, I mean, YouTube is a great resource for certain things. And one of my the best things I've seen as an as an actor, um, I'll just use it as an example, but any like highlight reel from actors that you admire, go back mm. and watch. Uh, whether it's a singing compilation, dance compilation, performance, there's a phenomenal 22 minute film. Uh, it's on Vimeo actually, it's called P.S. Hoffman. And it was created as a tribute to Philip Seymour Hoffman when he died. But all it is is 22 minutes of clips of his work. And it's it's one of the greatest, like, that will get you psyched up to get on stage and perform in, in ways that you've never seen before. So that would be like my specific um, yeah. tip there. But yeah, they, that, that's that's probably the best advice I can give. This is so great. I mean, I, I find myself going down YouTube spirals in ways like I just am like don't look at my history because there's because there's just it's like a combination of like you know RuPaul's Drag Race and now currently you know Olympics I'm looking at old school Olympics things um but but right but that's so it's so good I I love encouraging my students like it 
it's out there. Go, go and find it. You know, you do have to kind of dig a little bit, but there's some really great things. I love, love, love that recommendation. Thank, thank you so much. And also the final thing too, I mean, find stuff that makes you cry. I mean, it, it, it's, I can't, there, that's the one emotion I've always felt that we're, we don't want to go close to. We want to stay away from things that make us cry for any reasons, whether it's sadness, grief, happiness. It's just that emotion, that choked up feeling. The more I feel people can get into that realm, the better they can more understand about themselves. So, you know, I'll, I'll go and watch, you know, scenes from E.T. I'll go watch, you know, I'll go listen to James Horner's scores from like The Land Before Time that make me like weep like a baby and things like that. So the more people can get in touch with their emotional side, cry every day, cry, find something that makes you emotional every day wow. to get you choked up. Cause that, again, it just gets you better in tune with everything about yourself. That's a, that's an incredible, that's an incredible recommendation. I, I, uh, there's, yeah, that's awesome. Okay. Well, Chris, you're a rock star. I so, we both so appreciate you carving out the time in your busy schedule. Like you said, you really do have multiple full-time jobs, uh, not to mention the parenting. And, um, I, uh, I, we, it means a lot to us and our listeners that you, you made time to sit and chat with us. So anytime, uh, anytime. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, Kikau. Yeah, no, thank words? you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'm, I'm going to, as soon as we're done with this, I'm, I'm going to find something to make me cry. Typically, typically it's like small children singing or like Oprah giving things away. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go make that happen just so I can make sure I check that off. But we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah. My Thanks. pleasure, guys. Thanks. Thank Thanks. you so much. Music for Carefully Taught was provided by Joshua Haig. For more information, visit joshuahaigmusic.com.